Thanks for tuning in to Redeeming Grace Bible Church. Here at Redeeming Grace Bible Church, it's our full conviction, as Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We pray as a result of this sermon, you come to see and know Christ more clearly, and if you do not yet know Christ, that you might also come to see him as Lord and Savior. First Samuel chapter 1, starting at verse 21. Samuel given to the Lord. The men Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who was standing here in your presence, praying to the Lord. For she, for this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshipped the Lord there. Thank you, Luke. We remember uh, week by week that though the grass withers and though the flower fades, that the word of our God remains forever. Let's just go to him in prayer again, asking help as we open his word together. Bow with me, please. Father, we come before you again. And Lord, just even as we sang, we realize that even in creation, it was you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who brought all things into existence. And Lord, that your spirit is the one who brings life according to your good pleasure. And uh, we witness that life in so many ways all around us, though it is tainted and corrupted by sin, Lord, and even our own bodies, uh, we realize that it is you who um, give us life, who sustain us. It's in you that we live and move and have our being. And so we ask you now that you would Lord, continue to uh, sustain us as we look at your word, that your spirit would speak life to each heart here, God, that there would just be that work of sanctification, for we know that Jesus prayed to sanctify us in the truth, and that your word is truth, and so we pray that we would be more Christ-like in our desires, Lord, that we would be less enthralled by the things of this world as a result of your word this morning and that you would be pleased even to bring life uh, where there, there may be uh, death and bondage. 
Lord, expose within us uh, areas where we are, uh, even as the Israelites, Lord, looking more and more like the culture around us, Lord, holding on to idols and false views of you, that we would forsake all of those things and hold fast to Christ. And so I ask for help now by your spirit, that my words would be a blessing to your people and that your word would go forth in the power which you supply. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Thank you. This morning, the uh, title of the sermon is Hannah Fulfills Her Vow. You can also title it that God um, establishes his word. And you see in these passages as the two things come together. God is obviously the one working and arranging these various circumstances. And he's using the, the faith of even this woman, Hannah, to bring about his word and his plan. I don't know if you've ever made a promise that was difficult to follow through with, maybe something you committed to. Um, I know I tend to be uh, something of a a people pleaser, I suppose, which I have to daily grow in and and, and often can, you know, say I'll I'll check with my my wife to, uh, before I commit to something, because it's easy to make promises, it's easy to make commitments, and then find that it's difficult to follow through with. Maybe you've made a vow to love and cherish your spouse for better or for worse. And some days you uh, feel like maybe whacking them upside the head instead of fulfilling those vows. And in marriage, we see this uh, very much that there is this commitment to fulfill our word that we gave on the day we were married. Well, last week we saw Hannah uh, in in a place of desperation and deep sorrow because of her barrenness. And, and be also added to her inability to have children and produce an offspring for Elkanah, we find that his second wife, Panina, also um, would tease Hannah and, and mock her. And, and we could just imagine, I mean, if you have children that love to, to poke at each other and tease each other, the sort of things that would have gone on even as they went to the, the, the wilderness uh, temple, the, the tabernacle in Shiloh, and uh, Elkanah bringing the sacrifice of, of the, the animal before God and giving food to the children, and he gives to Hannah a double portion out of his love for her, and of course that would have provoked Penina all the more, and uh, you know, maybe saying things like, oh, it's too bad, Hannah, you don't have any children to, to eat with you as I do, and and Hannah became so despairingly brokenhearted that she couldn't eat. Uh, and she was unable to even stay at the table. And she went into the, uh, would have been the outer court of the tabernacle and there prayed to God, pouring out her soul. Eli assumed that she was a drunken woman because she was so distraught and she was weeping. And, and her, her, her mouth was moving, we're told, but she was praying in her heart to God. And she made this vow that... If God would look on her affliction, that he said, uh, she said in chapter 1, verse uh, 11 there, that uh, he would give the son, she said, I will give him to the Lord and all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. So Hannah makes this vow to God in her desperation for a son. 
And we're told that uh, she gets up, not necessarily given a promise at that point, but she gets up and eats, no doubt feeling a sense of, of relief, even having cast her cares upon the Lord, her anxieties upon him. She eats, they go to bed, they get up and worship together before heading home. And in time, we're told Hannah does, in fact, conceive and have a son. We're told the Lord remembered Hannah and she named her son Samuel. For she said, for I have asked for him from the Lord. And so we'll look this morning then at Hannah's fulfillment of this vow. And just as a quick uh, note as well, as we begin this book in the Old Testament, uh, we have these divisions of 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, that most likely in the, in the Jewish uh, Hebrew Bible, initially this was actually considered one book. And uh, it's believed that it would have been actually called the Book of the Kingdoms or Book of the Kingdoms. And so Samuel, all the way to 2 Kings, would have been a complete unit uh, in many ways, and it's not that the divisions are bad, they're helpful for us in, in navigating scriptures and studying, that we can reference something and find it very quickly, but those really came later um, once the Hebrew Bible was translated into the Greek, and then later from the Greek into the Latin, and, uh, and some of these divisions came in. So, so the, this theme, the, this story beginning here, is, is really a pivotal point in the history of Israel, and, and, and it's laid out in these four books uh, this pivotal time of reformation and also a change in government. So just to keep that in view as we work through this, there is much more going on here than just the uh, individual story of a barren woman and her family. But we do have the details of Hannah fulfilling this vow unto God. And we're told that once the child is born, uh, as is Elkanah's custom and the family's custom, they prepare to go back to Shiloh. Probably, uh, it's hard to say exactly how far they were. We're told that the hills of Ephraim, maybe a half a day to a day's journey to the, the tabernacle at Shiloh. And yet this time we're told that Hannah does not go with Elkanah. And she says that she is going to wait until the child is weaned. And then she will bring him to appear in the presence of God. So first of all, uh, this morning we see that there is this season of, of being at home uh, with the baby Samuel. Samuel and Hannah are at home. And yet Hannah no doubt is aware of the vow that she made to God. And we don't get any sense in that she is trying to avoid that vow. No doubt Hannah is aware of the scriptures and the commands of God to fulfill vows that are made. Even Solomon, um, who would be the offspring, would later say in Ecclesiastes 5.4, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? Clearly, throughout the scriptures, if somebody made a vow to God, it is a weighty matter. 
And even our own confession of faith in chapter 23 points out that a vow must not be made to any creature but to God alone. And vows should be made and performed with the most conscientious care and faithfulness. Even as we stand in, 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 in marriage and, and exchange vows one to another, there is a sense of weightiness. This is before God, the, the creator of all of the earth. We can't just flippantly say things, commit to things, especially when we are referencing God himself and then pretend that that later doesn't matter. Hannah is very aware, it becomes evident, that she has made this vow to God regarding this son, and she intends to fulfill the vow, but has pointed out to Elkanah that first she will nurse the child, and this practically uh, makes sense, that especially in a day and time when there was no formula, there was no baby food per se that could replace the mother's milk, that for, Han- for Samuel to get to a point where he could uh, be sustained by solid food, there was a time for him to be home with Hannah. And it's uh, incredible to think about her commitment and her faith to follow through with this promise that she made to God. And we have a few uh, young boys here. You know, we think of uh, little Landon or little Andrew. I mean, Samuel's, he's, he's just several months old at this point. And, and so he's very young. And we'll find that uh, Hannah is committed to give this child to the Lord as she said. And Hannah makes the statement that as soon as he is weaned, that he will appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. And it's an incredible statement for a woman who longed for a son for many years, and finally the Lord grants her her request. She has a son, and yet she is committed. She is ready to, as soon as the boy is able, take him to the temple and understanding that, that he is going to dwell there forever. Hannah's not looking for a a back door here as a way to escape her vow. She's not saying, well, maybe if Samuel just, uh, you know, puts in 40 hours a week at the temple and then he could be home after that. Uh, She's not trying to have a garage sale here and, and planning to move to Shiloh either so that she can stay next door to her son as a way to try and find a middle ground into the vow that she made to God. Uh, she is determined to follow through with what she said. And it's very interesting because, um, as we saw last week, I think there's evidence from Chronicles that Samuel is in the line of the Levites. And according to law, the, the Levites at 25, around age 20 to 25, would be devoted to the Lord to serve in the, the tabernacle to carry out the priestly duties. And then at age 50, they would actually enter into a form of early retirement And so the fact that Hannah has committed Samuel from childhood to the end of his days, his entire life, this is unique. This is above and beyond even the commitment of the Levitical line. And she is not looking to alter what she said, even though it may have been considered lawful by some. And it's also interesting why she would invoke the vow of the Nazarite, which I think many agree that's what she has done in in not... Uh, shaving the boy's head. This is similar to the vow of the Nazarite, which we saw in Samson's life, the previous judge of Israel, that uh, he was, it was a sign of his being devoted to God, that he was set aside for God's purpose all the days of his life. And, and you might say, well, 
if he is a Levite, he's already devoted to God. This is like this double devotion to God, as though Hannah is making the point that she intends for this boy's entire life to be in service to God the King. Now, of course, this is not to say that Hannah will never see him again. Uh, we will find in the coming chapters that when they, when they visit the, the, temp, the, ta- the tabernacle, uh, she is continuing to care for her son and love him and, and makes clothing for him and brings it to him. So it's not as though she is never going to see him again, but that he will dwell at the tabernacle and be devoted to the Lord his entire life. And what a tender time this must have been in the life of Samuel and Hannah. Just imagine the the joy that Hannah experienced as she holds this little boy in her arms and maybe softly singing the the songs of God to him, maybe the the song of Moses as she's raising this little boy, knowing that that she has committed him to, to belong to the Lord. And no doubt in these years of caring for him, preparing Samuel for that very work. Maybe she sang the song of Moses, the Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. And no doubt during this time at home, Hannah would tell Samuel over and over again that she didn't think she would ever have a son, but that she had asked for him from the Lord and that God had given him to her. And and one day she would tell little Samuel that you will return to God for you are his. Not out of a lack of love for Samuel. You have this picture of a a tender mother who, who is caring and nurturing her child, but also preparing him for a life of ministry and service. And I can just imagine how those days would have flown past for Hannah. On the one hand, wanting to hold her son forever. You know, maybe if she could have thought to herself, well, if I, if I haven't yet weaned him, technically he could stay home. And, you know, six, seven years old, it's like, yeah, it's probably time, Hannah, to, to wean your son. But we, don't, we really don't get any indication of that here, that uh, likely in this time they would have probably nursed their children from about eight to age three, and maybe up to even age five, uh, especially if the, uh, it was difficult to get you know, we're very spoiled in our day. We can go and get all kinds of fruits and vegetables and nutritious food. We can get supplements and all of this thing. So I don't think it's unreasonable that Hannah would have likely uh, nursed Samuel until around the age of five. And how those years must have flown past for her. I could just only imagine some of the uh, wrestling in her own spirit at times. I mean, even to, to leave our, a child that a grandparent's day for a, a, a day. Sometimes parents are emotional and crying and I'm going to miss my baby so much and, 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 and we, we become very attached to our children, don't we? And for Hannah to demonstrate this faith that she is going to bring her son probably around five years old to the temple and there leave him to be raised among the, the priests and in the service to God is an incredible picture of faith and trust and integrity to fulfill her word. And I know we must be careful in these narrative portions of Scripture to draw too many uh, applications. 
one of the, the principles of, of reading narrative scripture, which I often repeat to myself and is good to remind you of as well, is that narrative is not normative, which just means that what we find in these narrative portions of scripture are not necessarily things that we are to also do. So it would be a bad application to say, well, if you want a son and you don't have a son, then like Hannah, you should go to the church and there pray and vow to offer that son unto God and he will give you a son. See, that's not the point here. That's not, that's not a, a, a proper um, application from this sort of, of scripture. And so I want to be careful not trying to um, force implications on you that, that God is not intended. But certainly we do see this beautiful example of motherhood. We see this wonderful example of, of, of raising up a child in the fear and admonition of the Lord as the, as the other parts of scripture affirm. And, and this picture of children being a heritage from God, those that are really entrusted to us from God. And though Hannah was acutely aware of this because she had so um, passionately prayed for Samuel and, and, and perhaps we didn't as intentionally seek the Lord in, in the gift of children, but there is the same sense in which all of our children are entrusted to us from the Lord and we will give an account to him, I believe, on how we have handled that entrustment. And there's a sense in which we hold our children with an open hand before God, trusting that, that they belong to him. And, and if he is pleased to use them in the furtherance of his kingdom, if, if the Lord wants to lead them into missions overseas or into a, a dangerous place for the cause of Christ, that we would not stand in the way and say, no, you're my son. I want you close to home. I want to I be near my grandchildren. I want you to work alongside of dad. No, these, these children belong to God. And, and there's a sense in which this is true of all of us. But in a u- unique way here, uh, we see Hannah has committed Samuel for his life to serve. And so we see this season at home. And then secondly, I want to look for a moment at Alcana's response to Hannah as she uh, just points out to him that she will not go uh, until Samuel is ready to be um, left at the temple. And I really appreciate Alcana's response here. I know I kind of... Uh, uh, maybe pointed a finger at him a little bit last week in his comment about being more than 10 sons to Hannah when she was needing someone to come for her and pray with her, not so much point out his, his own uh, excellence to her. <laughs> but here I think we find uh, a godly example in this man, Alcana, that he was not uh, forceful or rude with Hannah. He was very understanding and gracious. And he told her, Uh, to do what seems best to you, in verse 23, wait until you have weaned him, only may the Lord establish his word. A very interesting response from Elkanah in Hannah pointing out that she's not ready to yet take Samuel. It's also interesting to note that according to Numbers 30, uh, verse 10 and following, Elkanah could have, according to the law, nullified Hannah's vow. That as soon as he became aware of it, as the husband, as the head of the home, if he deemed that to be a foolish vow or something that was going to be uh, detrimental to Hannah, he could have nullified it. But we see here that he has not nullified Hannah's vow, but out of love and respect for her and her promise to God, Elkanah is working to support Hannah and even has made his own prayer and desire that the word of God be established 
through this whole situation, even in the life of his son. And so I think it is a gracious, tender picture of his care for Hannah and the respect in supporting her. Though as a father, you could imagine not being overly excited about taking your five-year-old son to the temple, uh, a temple which we will see is actually filled with immorality and, and terrible examples in the sons of Eli. And yet there is a sense of, of, of trust and faith and uh, love for his wife. It also links him to Abraham in a way that's very interesting. Um, we would be wrong to look at this story independent from what has come before. And sometimes it's helpful just to step back and think about what has come before this story. That uh, one um, Bible teacher I was listening to a bit compared it to a, a, a string of pearls. And that in these stories, we must understand that God is moving history, moving his people uh, in these moments as like a, a string of pearls on a necklace. And, and that we're really, it's, he's moving it towards the, the, the diamond at the center, which is Christ. And so what God has begun in Abraham, in calling him out to be the father of a great multitude of people who would be his own uh, special possession that we have these connection points that remind us that this is part of a history of God's working among his people. And though in the end of Judges, we see that everyone has done what is right in his own eyes and there is no king in Israel. And so this is a, a desperate time in the life of Israel. There is also this history of God's covenant faithfulness to his people. And so Elkanah here, I think, does somewhat remind us of Abraham. The, the, the husband of a barren wife who is instructed to give up his only son as a demonstration of faith to God. God, of course, in a different way, asked Abraham to sacrifice his son, who we know uh, was a test for Abraham. And he did not actually sacrifice his son, but God intervened. And Abraham de demonstrated that sort of faith. I think we see a similar faith in the life of Elkanah and also connecting him to this line of faith through Abraham. What does he mean, may the Lord establish his word? In many ways, this is something of a, uh, you could almost say a, a heading for the whole life of Samuel and, and, and all that is to follow. The Lord establishing his word. As I said, this is not just about uh, a woman, uh, you know, a, 3,000 years ago who couldn't have a children and prayed and asked for a son and God gave her a son and you have kind of the makings of a nice Hallmark movie or something, right? If you just kind of left it there. There's more going on. This is God's faithfulness to his people, the establishment of his word, the bringing back of a people who are headlong into idolatry, into sexual immorality. The judges, 12 judges have come before Samuel trying to Form, uh, act as deliverers of Israel, calling them to repent. But many of the judges themselves were compromised and immoral. And so that we have God establishing his word in this boy as he raises up for himself a prophet, a, a, a mediator between his people and himself, one who will usher in the monarchy in Israel, establishing even the throne of David. And when you begin to put those themes together here, you realize that I think Alcana in saying, may the Lord establish his word, is 
is, is really praying that even through this situation with Hannah, God would be glorified. God's purposes would go forward. Maybe he even has the promises of Abraham in mind or God's work through Moses and Joshua and bringing them into the promised land. Maybe Elkanah's thinking even further back to the garden when God told Eve that through her would come one to crush the head of the serpent. Maybe in Elkanah's mind he wonders, could this child be the serpent crusher that was promised to Eve, constantly looking for that Messiah that was to come and deliver the people from their enemies. And we'll see there is a sense in which Samuel does serve as a type of Christ, as a serpent crusher, as a prophet who will faithfully proclaim the word of God to the people, as a mediator who intercedes for the people. All of that is here in the story of Samuel. But this family, I would say, is very much an anomaly at this time. They would, this is not common as in light of judges and the, the brokenness and the pain and the wickedness that was so rampant in that time. To find a God-fearing family like this who, who, who delighted in the Lord, feared the Lord, longed that the, the word of God would be established in their day. I would say this was very unusual in that time. Even as we look at the the priesthood next week, and Eli and his sons are, are immoral and, and abusing the sacrifices of God. Here is this bright, shining light in this little family that may seem insignificant to the passerby, but we know in the purposes of God is a mighty instrument that he is using. And I think for us many times we feel as well in this day and time in a culture that is so engulfed in immorality, in wickedness, in evil, in godlessness, maybe among even your own family members. You feel like the odd one out, like you're the eccentric one. You're the weird one. You know, why, why, why are you homeschooling your children? What's wrong with you? Why can't you just get along with the world? Right? And we feel the pressure to, to maybe just look a little bit like them, to act a little bit like them so that, that we fit in. But you see, I think we have in this, this family a wonderful example as well of a family who fears the Lord and devotes themselves to the establishment of his word, trusting in him to use it for good and in that way being salt and light. And may God also uh, establish us in the same way as salt and light those through whom he can accomplish his purpose. So we see Elkanah's response there. And then we finally have, as the section comes to a, uh, before the, the, we won't get into the prayer of Hannah today, though it's very much tied to this section, but just looking then lastly, that Samuel is entrusted to God at the tabernacle. And as I said, Samuel is, probably around three to five years old uh, at this point. And we're told that they, again, bring an offering to God. There's a little bit of a discrepancy as they make their way um, to the tabernacle. Some translations say that they took, uh, along with them, three bulls. Um, Reading from the English standard, it says a three-year-old bull, ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. Um, the King James translates it as three bulls, three independent bulls, 
Uh, it's not a, a major um, difference to get too worked up about, but um, possibly that was the case because the amount of flour and wine that she brings would have been the right amount for three different bull offerings. Otherwise, they have brought three times the wine and flour that was necessary according to the law. Um, so I, I tend to lean towards the, they, they, they may have brought multiple sacrifices because you have the festal, festival uh, sacrifices from which they could eat. There was sacrificial sacrifices that had unique uh, restrictions. And then there was also sacrifices um, regarding vows and oaths, which they also very well may have brought in light of Hannah's vow to God. And in Deuteronomy 12, I'll just go there for just a moment. Um, we see some of this instruction. It's very interesting. It's hard for us to really uh, understand exactly what this would have looked like. And, you know, this would have just seemed so normal to them. To us, it's very uh, unusual. Never brought an animal anywhere to be sacrificed other than maybe, you know, the butcher shop to be put into the freezer. But uh, for them, this was part of the way they worship God and and uh, honored him and demonstrated their obedience. So Hebrews 12, 5, uh, we have a bit of instruction here regarding some of these sacrifices that no doubt was at work here. So, um, oh, I don't know why I went to Genesis, sorry. For some reason too far back. Deuteronomy 12 and verse 5. Just read a few verses there. Um, He says, but you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and contributions that you present, your vow offerings, your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God and you shall rejoice, you and your households, in all that you undertake in which the Lord, your God, has blessed you. You shall not do according to all that we are doing here today, everyone doing what is right in his own eyes, for you have not yet as come to rest and to the inheritance that the Lord, your God, is giving you. But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land that the Lord, your God, is giving you to inherit, and when he gives you rest from all your enemies around, so that you may live in safety, then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there, there you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes and contributions that you present, and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. And this is exactly what Hannah and Elkanah are doing with their family. And we find that they, uh, even either if they brought three bulls or one bull and three times the wine and the flour, there is this picture of a family that is bringing their finest, they're bringing their best, they're bringing an abundance of offerings to God. They are not going to the temple with a sulky sort of attitude that, well, I made this vow and now I guess I have to follow through, but I'm going to resent it every step of the way. Uh, it is, um, as we know, God... Um, delights in a, a cheerful giver. There's this sense of joy. And though it would be mingled, no doubt, with some sorrow and difficulty as well. As they are aware of leaving this little boy there with Eli the priest. 
Now, as Hannah approaches Eli, who may or may not know about her vow, we're not told if Eli's aware of the vow that was made. Quite possibly, Elkanah had come uh, the previous years, and maybe Eli noticed Hannah wasn't there. You know, where's Hannah? Is everything okay? And maybe uh, Elkanah would have explained to him what had happened, that the Lord had given this son. Uh, was Eli you know, made aware of what's gonna, that he's going to be left with a five-year-old little boy to care for and uh, to raise up in the temple. We're, we're just not sure on a lot of those details. I would assume that he probably had some sense of what was going on and uh, some awareness from Elkanah's previous visits that uh, this was going to be happening. And we find Hannah sees Eli and she says in verse 26, Oh, my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore, I have lent him to the Lord as long as he lives. He has lent to the Lord, and he worshipped the Lord there. And the word lent is a little bit misleading on the translation, and I really wish uh, I I understood Hebrew um, far more than I do, but there is lots of good help out there, thankfully. And uh, the, the word could be maybe better translated as entrusted to the Lord or even dedicated to the Lord. It's not that Hannah sees that Samuel is technically hers and she's just kind of, you know, letting God use him a little bit. It's this idea that, that she has brought Samuel and that he is being dedicated to God. He is being entrusted to the care of God. That she, in, in a sense, is, is, is taking her hands off and saying that he belongs to the Lord. And, uh, and she tells Eli, in a sense, that I have asked uh, Adonai for this son. He has entrusted him to me. And now I'm entrusting him back to Adonai. And he belongs to him all the days of his life. We see this tremendous faith in God, this willingness to fulfill her vows uh, that she had made to God in prayer And no doubt this is also by the enabling of God's spirit, even in the boy Samuel. We're not told that he threw a fit. He did not start screaming, uh, you know, or running around. It's really hard for us to even understand the dynamics at work here. I mean, my youngest is three, going on four. I just, you know, I just can't comprehend in a year's time, uh, you know, dedicating him to the Lord in such a, in such a dramatic way. Um, and obviously that is, is not the, the point here either that we're supposed to somehow follow in this. But to just see the, the faithfulness of God in sustaining this family, honoring their bringing of Samuel. And from there, we see how God does, in fact, establish him. So next week, Lord willing, we will begin to look into Hannah's song of praise. So just by way of application, as we close here this morning, um, as I said, it's, it's a little uh, sometimes difficult to know how to properly apply these things to us without um, being unfair to you. Uh, you know, I think it would be wrong again to say that, well, you ought to also dedicate your children to the Lord in this way and bring your sons and daughters or a son or daughter to, to you know, live with the, the pastor at his house. You know, as much as I would love a daughter uh, in many ways, you know, I'm not expecting anyone to, to drop off a girl at our doorstep. And so I'm going to be like Hannah and devote this child to the Lord. Um, and so we want to be careful with, in the way that we apply this. But um, an interesting phrase that, that will come up again and again is that, ha- that Hannah 
um, brought Samuel to live in the presence of God. And if you've ever read some of R.C. Sproul's um, Table Talk magazines, he, there's always the Coram Dale thought for the day, which is helping us to, to think about the fact that our lives are lived out Coram Deo, but before the face of God, just as Samuel's entire life was to be. And this would mark his life from beginning to end, till the day he died. He lived this sort of life that was before the face of God. That, that, that God was not only aware of what Samuel was doing, but God was with him. And that he is the Lord's servant. And even as New Covenant members in Christ, there's a sense in which this is true of us. Our lives are to be lived before the face of God as well in all that we do. Uh, Paul would point out that God's presence is not manifest in a, a physical dwelling anymore at Shiloh or Grand Prairie or Fairview as though there's a tabernacle or temple we must go to to, to um, find the, the presence of God, but that as the, the church... We are indwelt by the Spirit of God, that we ourselves are living temples of God, the place where His presence is to be manifest on the earth. And so we are to live our lives before the face of God as servants, as humble ministers unto Him. Samuel, in many ways, is a picture even of the promises of the new covenant that not you will not have to say to your neighbor, know the Lord, for all will know me. All will have the Spirit of God living within them who are of Christ. And this, uh, even as Moses would pray, oh, that, that, that God's Spirit would fill all of his people. And so we experience the, the, the new covenant blessings, which they did not, and we can give thanks for that. And there is also a sense we can look at these men and women, as Hebrews 11 does, men and women of faith, and we can give thanks for their example. We can see some principles that we ought to walk in as well. Uh, as I said, the call for honoring God in the home of uh, raising up godly children to, to glorify God by the strength that he provides, of living um, set apart in a wicked and perverse generation seeking to have the word of God established in our lives and through us, God, call a people back to himself. Those are all wonderful principles that we can also seek to walk in by his help. But just for a, a few minutes, let us again step back and think about the bigger picture in light of what is happening uh, here in, in Samuel's life. This, in many ways, is something of a microcosm of the larger picture that's happening. A barren and desperate time in the life of Israel. A time when the family line of Israel could have easily been cut off by God because of their sin and immorality. And yet God is pleased to raise up a final judge in Samuel. A final and faithful prophet who will proclaim the word of God and deliver the people and also usher in a change of government for the people of Israel. Samuel will be the final judge, but also the means by which God ushers in the, the kingship, in specifically of David, which would then lead us to Christ, the son of David. And so this is a picture of God's faithfulness, his amazing work in the life of his people, in the history of humanity, upholding, sustaining. 
And it should give us confidence as well that God is faithful to, in, to, to establish us, to give us the strength to pass through difficult seasons, dark times in the history of our country, perhaps, or the world. We may be tempted to look around and throw up our hands as though it, it, there's too much darkness, there's too much evil, there's too much brokenness. You know, just, just kind of rapture me out of here mentality instead of a quiet confidence that God will establish his word and a, and a, and a prayer to God to, to use us. And we can look at this with thanksgiving. And it also points us forward to one day when even Mary and Joseph would bring their firstborn son to the temple to be circumcised, to be devoted to the Lord how Jesus would also grow as a boy in wisdom and stature and favor with God, that he might proclaim the pure word of God to the people, calling them to repent, calling them to reform themselves again to the scriptures, that Christ might stand in the gap between God and man as mediator, that Christ would intercede on our behalf to the Father who is in heaven and make atonement for our sin. Christ the true son of David, the king of kings and Lord of lords. This story points us to Christ, the true prophet, priest, and king of all of God's people. And even this picture of them giving this boy to the service of God, does it not remind us of what Jesus said in John 3, 13? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And we find in even this story a picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let us close there this morning. Uh, pray, and we'll have a final song. So bow with me, please. Father in heaven, we thank you for these records, Lord. It's in, uh, hard for us to uh, really understand that 3,000 years ago, these events unfolded, Lord, and that you, the same God who is here working today, was actively working then, preparing the way for Christ to come, for your kingdom to be established, Lord, for of sin to be dealt with and confronted. And I, God, I pray that uh, we would walk in the strength of your spirit, that we would be a people set apart unto your name, Lord, that we would rejoice in the, the kingship of Christ over all things and live our lives in humble obedience to you, Lord, that through us you might show the nations who you are. You might demonstrate your love and mercy and grace through the way that we relate to one another as husbands and wives and children, Lord, and that even, uh, Lord, showing your purposes to call from every tribe, tongue, and nation those who will be redeemed by Christ and raised up with him on the last day. Thank you for your word. May it uh, be a blessing to your people. And we ask you to guide us into this week now. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for tuning in to this sermon preached at Redeeming Grace Bible Church. 
If you'd like to find out more about Redeeming Grace Bible Church or find other sermons and resources, please visit us online at www.redeeminggracechurch.ca. We pray that the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. That the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.